If you think about it, it's a strange thing for a very rich man to do, to run for president. Because it means throwing yourself into a thousand tedious and potentially demeaning situations. For instance, you show up at a debate with the other millionaires who are running for president, and you try to make a joke out of the negative ads they are running against you. You didn't even use a good picture of me, you protest. So I brought you some pictures. You wave a few snapshots into the air. You try to turn this debate into something on your own terms. You try to seize the moment. You pass the photos to one of your millionaire opponents. He does not even look at them. He tells you that no pretty pictures are going to change your lousy record on taxes. You come off terribly. Another bad moment. Well, this actually happened to Bob Dole. Just last February. Bob Dole, now the presumptive Republican nominee to the presidency. Well, from WBEZ Chicago, it is This American Life, your weekly program documenting life in these here United States through whatever radio storytelling means we believe will amuse you and ourselves. I'm Ira Glass, and today we consider the stories of three men who had the option of comfortable, decent lives and decided to do something wildly eccentric instead, like run for president. Act 1 concerns a politician you have probably never heard of. Act 2 is a man who wrote a very strange letter to his yet unborn, yet unconceived children. Act 3, another mixed legacy of a rich guy. Stay with us. Act 1, The Grizz. Over the last few months, a reporter named Michael Lewis has been publishing campaign diaries in the New Republic. I don't know if you've seen these or not. They're pretty great. He's also a columnist for the New York Times, a commentator on Marketplace, author of three books, including one called Liar's Poker. That is a pretty hilarious account of Wall Street in the 80s. This is a guy whose reporting reads like a novel, usually a pretty entertaining, funny novel. And on the campaign trail, he has noticed a hundred telling moments that no other reporter has documented. Like, for example, the day that Al Franken of Saturday Night Live showed up at a Pat Buchanan rally and picked a fight with some pro-Buchanan military cadets. Like, for example, Pat Buchanan railing against a Detroit steel mill closing, but then, quietly, turning down the offer to actually sit on the board of directors of the mill and try to save it. And then, at some point, Michael Lewis became fascinated with some of the candidates that everyone else was ignoring. And by everyone else, I include both the reporters and the voters, okay? There were nine Republican candidates back in Iowa. And if you can name all nine of those candidates right now, I've got a crisp $100 bill right here in my hand. Call this station and no, I'm not going to give you the phone number. Please consider now, when you consider these nine candidates, what could be a better subject for an entertaining, novelistic kind of writer than someone running for president who has pretty much no chance of making it? There you have a truly American story. There 
you have a classic American dreamer. And Lewis became so interested in one of these certain losers, a guy named Maury Taylor, that at some point, Lewis's editor got completely fed up with him and ordered him never to follow around Taylor anymore. I did not send you out there to write Maury Taylor's biography, the guy said. But it is easy to see why Lewis became so mesmerized with Taylor. Taylor would give away cash prizes to voters at his rallies. Taylor would burst onto stages, reciting the words to his campaign theme song, Bruce Springsteen's Dancing in the Dark. He would say, You need a spark to start a fire, and this gun's for hire. Taylor spent $6 million of his own money on the campaign. As Lewis points out, of nine Republican candidates, Taylor was the only one who had actually been a success in the real business world. Taylor began as a tool and die maker, bought failing companies, made them profitable, and by last year, his own company, Titan Tire and Wheel International. I'll just say that name again. Let's just pause on that name. Titan Tire and Wheel International tallied $620 million in revenue, no debt and one of the highest profit margins of any company on the New York Stock Exchange. Maury Taylor has spent his whole life in the Midwest, and that is where Michael Lewis's diaries on him begin. Michael Lewis agreed to come into our studios and read. January 11th. Within minutes of landing in Des Moines, you know that you have arrived in the American Midwest. The Midwest is the straight man of the Western world. Millions and millions of square miles peopled with abbots without their costellos. It's not that Midwesterners lack a sense of humor. It's just that they regard humor as a second-rate behavior, the opposite of, rather than a complement to, seriousness. It's no wonder that professional Midwestern humorists like Garrison Keillor and David Letterman have the feel of men who have spun out of some orbit. I've come to Iowa to find Maury Taylor, the man who by a landslide won the hearts of the United We Stand delegates at Ross Perot's convention last fall. After hearing him speak, 400 of the 2,000 people present signed up to work on his campaign. The strange thing about Taylor is that he hasn't gotten more play in the press or the polls. He's the real thing, an extremely successful businessman who has behaved about as well as an extremely successful businessman can. He employs 5,500 people at a wage rate of $12 to $17 an hour, all of whom are included in a profit-sharing plan. He pays himself a modest salary and argues forcefully and often that CEOs of publicly held corporations should never be paid more than about 20 times the wages of their most menial workers. Actually, that's probably one of the reasons no one has heard of him until now. January 12th. We start our day just before 8 o'clock inside a motorhome plastered all over with Maury's favorite Screaming Eagle logo, the one his campaign staffers plead with him to abandon. A ferocious-looking bird flies out of the T in Maury's last name, which is painted in huge letters across the side of the colossal machine. Maury's campaign manager tried to talk him out of the expense, but Maury insisted that the best way to start running for president was to buy six RVs, land yachts, they are called, and race them in a convoy across each of Iowa's 99 counties and through every New Hampshire hamlet. Six monstrosities all jammed together and churning down the highway at 80 miles an hour, with the Pointer Sisters blaring out of the lead vehicle, drowning out everything but Maury. 
Maury figured that he'd roll them into town, surround the courthouse, flip on the loudspeakers, tap a few kegs of beer, and everyone for miles would be talking about Maury Taylor for the next two weeks. He was right. Today, like every other day, Maury is wearing his American flag tie. He's shouting over music and the roar of the lanyard into a telephone at a radio talk show host. Anyone who wants to come and help, call 1-800-USA-BEAR. The talk show host asks him some question. Well, replies Maury, I use the bear number because my nickname is the Grizz. Why do they call you the Grizz, I ask, after he hangs up. I got that when I took the company public, he shouts. At the closing, they gave me this plaque. It says, and they did it in Latin, which language I can't speak, but this is what it says. In North America, there is no known predator to the grizzly. So I became the Grizz. Then I thought about it. Up until that time, I kind of liked my other nickname, Attila. People think Attila the Hun was a barbarian, but he's not. He's the guy who ran the Roman legion out of town. At 9 o'clock, the lanyard rolls up beside the front door of the Ames High School and disgorges Maury. Maury then does his usual trick of startling the locals. He bursts through both double doors leading into the school, which, like all the doors he will open for the rest of the day, slam violently against the wall behind them. He marches off down a long corridor with the rest of us trying to keep up, leaving a trail of startled adolescents in his wake. He swaggers like a quarterback on the way to a huddle. Did you play sports in high school, I asked Maury, or rather the back of Maury's head? He doesn't even look around. He's shaking his head. I have no trouble imagining the scorn on his face. Did I play sports, he asks. I am the biggest jock who ever ran for president. I can beat you in anything. And with that, he blows through the double doors leading into the auditorium. About 30 kids file in, slump down into their seats, and settle in for a snooze they'll never have. Your school is too big, booms Maury. This is what is wrong with America, he says, pointing at the kids. Big, big, big. A place like this breeds weirdos. The students are now fully alert. I never could enjoy going to a school like this, concludes Maury. The kids seem to concur. How many of you ever take a counting, he asks. The kids are now squirming and ducking. He's breaking down their resistance, making them nervous. Two hands go up. Maury shakes his head a little sadly. His tone changes. I know you got a lot of these teachers. He waves nonchalantly at a couple of uneasy-looking older men in the rafters. And they tell you a lot of... He doesn't use the word crap, but he might as well. Things. But in your whole entire life, you were only going to use one or maybe two of those things. He pauses and seems to reconsider. Now we all agree that the most important thing in your life is your family, he says. Your mama and your daddy, your brothers and your sisters. But right after that, there's something else. We all know what it is, and it's green. With that, he reaches into his pocket and produces a fat roll of $100 bills. He holds it high so that everyone can see. Five grand, cash. The kids are now perched on the edge of their seats. 
giggling nervously. It all comes down to accounting, says Maury. Accounting and money. You can't live without it. And the minute you make it, someone is trying to take it away from you. So for God's sake, find out about money. Can I have some? asks a kid in the front row. It's mine, shouts Maury, and puts the money back in his pocket. A nice illustration of some general business principle. Maury's positions are somewhat quixotic. He's running on a platform of balancing the budget in 18 months, not by eliminating programs, but by firing a third of the best-paid government employees. How many of you want to give the government 40% of what you earn after you get out of here? He asks the crowd. One of the kids raises his hand. Mark his name down, says Maury. An institution needs him. We're going to study his brain. He's not human. He's an alien. January 13th. Tonight we flew in one of Maury's private planes to a Republican County dinner at Storm Lake in northwestern Iowa. After dinner, Maury rises to speak. He's on. Within minutes, he has the crowd laughing and clapping. They agree with him about everything, especially the lunacy of the Forbes tax plan. Then, in the midst of the fun, a woman rises and challenges his pro-choice position. It's a religious issue, Maury says. Not a matter for the federal government. She presses him. You can see she's used to making public speakers either come around to her way of thinking or regret ever opening their mouths. She's picked the wrong guy today. Instead of backing down or wiggling, Maury goes on the attack. Look, ma'am, I think 99% of women never want an abortion. They go through a lot of mental anguish. They suffer a lot. I say, leave it to them. She tries to speak. Maury interrupts. I said, leave it to the women. And there, at a banquet filled with Republican Party hacks, the sort of people who are meant to be rapidly pro-life, who Maury expected to be rapidly pro-life, a volcano of spontaneous applause erupted. All over the room, women were clapping so hard I thought they'd break their hands. Here, I thought, is the benefit of having someone around who feels free to speak his mind. He liberates, however momentarily, those who don't. January 14th. I was waiting at the front desk of the Des Moines YMCA when Maury arrived just before 9 a.m. What do you think I wouldn't show? He says. The racquetball game took just under 22 minutes. Maury won. 15 zip, 15 five. I had figured that between the 25 extra pounds he's carrying around and the 16 years he has on me, I could out-hustle him. I was wrong. He knew every angle and trick on the court and played each one with relish. Too good, he'd shout after he'd dropped the ball into the corner for the tenth time. As the route progressed, he shouted to his aides, 14 to zip, not bad for an old guy, he shouted. And then under his breath, some of my guys are betting on you, dipshit. As we crawl through the hole out the back of the court, he says, Don't you go right that you lost because you were nervous the presidential candidate was going to have a heart attack. Camus identified the love of winning at games as one of the prerequisites of happiness in the modern world. 
And he did that without ever meeting Maury. More of Michael Lewis's campaign diaries and Maury Taylor later in our show. Stay with us. So, Jack, let's start here. This is the case of Hecht versus California, right? Right. Um, The facts of the case, and let me just go straight to the sort of unaffected prose of the judges. Um, This introduces all the characters and the essential events of the case. At the age of 48, William Kane took his own life on October 30th, 1991, in a Las Vegas hotel. For about five years prior to his death, he had been living with petitioner, 38-year-old Deborah Hecht, Kane was survived by two college-aged children of his former wife, whom he had divorced in 1976. Okay, so now we have a dead guy, his girlfriend, two kids, and a former wife. But that is not all we have of citizen William Kane's life. We also have... 15 vials of his sperm in an account at California Cryobank, Inc. And this is where the story of this willful man with money begins. It is our contributing editor, Jack Hitt, who reviewed the case for us. Jack's work regularly appears not just on this program, but in the New York Times Magazine, Harper's Esquire, Lingua Franca, and too many other publications to name. But let us get back to Citizen William Kane. Mr. Kane does not have Maury Taylor's kind of money, but he did have enough. And in his will, he declared that if his girlfriend would use any of the 15 vials of sperm and succeeded in getting pregnant, then the resulting child would get some of Kane's personal mementos and possibly the rights to some money. This is a odd case of American jurisprudence, and the legal opinion includes the letter that William Kane wrote to his unborn, yet-to-be-conceived child, Wyatt. Jack Hitt reads, I address this to my children, because although I have only two, Everett and Katie, it may be that Deborah will decide, as I hope she will, to have a child by me after my death. I've been assiduously generating frozen sperm samples for that eventuality. If she does, then this letter is for my posthumous offspring as well, with the thought that I have loved you in my dreams, even though I never got to see you born. If you are receiving this letter, it means that I am dead, whether by my own hand or that of another makes very little difference. I feel that my time has come, and I wanted to leave you with something more than a dead enigma that was your father. I am inordinately proud of who I have been, what I made of me. I'm so proud of that, that I would rather take my own life now than be ground into a mediocre existence by my enemies, who, because of my mistakes and bravado, have gained the power to finish me. How many people do we know in our lives, Jack, who can say a sentence like that? Every sentence in this letter is worthy of study. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, from... I've been assiduously generating frozen sperm samples for that eventuality to, if you are receiving this letter, it means that I am dead. And, and it goes on, Ira. Check this out. So, okay. so he has several pages about his childhood memories and the family history. And then, quote, so why am I checking out now? Basically, betrayal over and over again has made me tired. I've picked up some heavyweight enemies along the way, ranging from the Kellys of the world to crazies with guns to insurance agencies, to the lawyers that have sucked me dry. I don't want to die as a tired, perhaps defeated and bitter old man. I'd rather end it like I have lived it, on my time, 
when and where I will. Regrets, I have a few. <laughs> But again, but Ira, listen to this next sentence. To mention, <laughs> I've lived a life that's full. <laughs> oh yeah. But we digress. Um, he says, "I'd rather end it like I have lived it on my time, when and where I will, and while my life is still an object of self-sculpture, a personal creation with which I am still proud. In truth." Death for me is not the opposite of life. It is a form of life's punctuation. End quote. I like him. <laughs> well, you know, what's... It's like a Martin Scorsese film. Yeah, he, and he's got this tough guy thing. You know, here he is talking to his kid. I love that phrase. So why am I checking out now? <laughs> <You know? laughs> oh, by the way, just to make it even more interesting and soap opera-ish, the lawyer for the two kids, mm-hmm. her name is Sandra Irwin. Um, if you read carefully elsewhere, you find out that she is their mother and Mr. Kane's original wife. Wow. So the lawyer suing the, sa- the, the, the girlfriend is, in fact, the first recipient of Mr. Kane's sperm. So, um, and then in a footnote, you sort of discover just what the relationship is between uh, the Kane children, the existing children, as I call them, and, uh, and Deborah. So here, this is just a footnote just dropped in the text, and uh, this pretty much says everything you need to know. On November 12, 1992, decedent's children filed against Hecht a complaint for wrongful death and intentional infliction of emotional distress, wherein they alleged that their father, who had been unemployed for some time, became deeply depressed and began to seriously contemplate suicide about September 1, 1991. For six weeks before his death, Hecht was aware of decedent's, quote, disturbed plan, end quote, to end his life, that Hecht convinced him to allow her to have his child after his death and leave her a substantial amount of his property to raise and care for this child. In the week before his death, Hecht encouraged and assisted decedent in transferring property to her, and she also generously helped him, quote, empty his personal checking account by issuing a check to Hecht for $80,000 which you learn elsewhere, she signed herself. Um, Hecht, and then here's my favorite sentence. Hecht assisted decedent in purchasing a one-way ticket to Las Vegas and took him to the airport. Okay. I wonder what that curbside conversation was. Can you imagine? She bought a one-way ticket to Las Vegas knowing that he was going to go sit in a hotel, take pills. She also, by the way, bought him the plastic bag that he put over his head after he took the pills. She gave him a copy of Final Exit, which is a suicide manual. Can I wait? Could yeah. just, could, the plastic bag to put over his head when he after he takes the pills. Isn't that the whole point of pills? Is that you don't have to do the ugly thing of getting a gun or plastic bags? I mean, isn't that the whole point? Ira, you're not up on your suicide manuals, according to um, Derek Humphrey. I believe that's the man's name who wrote Final Exit. Um, quite often, if you take a lot of pills, a lot of people will just end up getting sick. And you will live. So um, <clears throat> the idea is to put the yes. You take the pills to make sure that you um, will die, and then you um, suffocate yourself with the plastic in the bag, bag so that you don't sort of wake up and vomit. It's pretty grim, um, and certainly not the the province of this discussion. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'm learning just yes. so much here. Right. Okay. Right. So. The thing is, they're not really concerned about the money because they, they cut a deal with Debbie. 
the deal was we get 80%, you get 20. What they're worried about is that if she gets pregnant, and this is where like this whole case opens up a bizarre form of new law. What they're worried about is that the child would have a claim to the estate, to their 80%. And in fact, the child probably would. And that's because under his uh, will, he says that if she gets pregnant and has the child, then the child gets some dough? Well, it's, it's just that it's, it's an unresolved matter. So it's, it's likely that the child would be able to sue later on for the kind of benefits that any natural biological child would be able to sue for. Mr. Kane is the biological father. He just participated in this new um, science, which is um, referred to in the case with the phrase post-mortem insemination. <laughs> we return to our own post-mortem examination when our program continues. continues our discussion with journalist Jack Hitt about a dead man and his sperm. So here's what the lawsuit's about. The lawsuit is the existing kids want to destroy the sperm, all of it, 15 vials assiduously deposited, as we know. Um, in, the, in, the, in the course of their, of their complaint, the existing kids say that you know they seek to, quote, prevent the disruption of existing families by afterborn children. Afterborn children. There's another. There's another new. Uh, and this this case, in terms of of what it's doing to the English language, is just groundbreaking. <laughs> Forget about what it does to the law. Right. Afterborn um, children. Is complicated by the fact that Debbie is 38 years old in 1991, and she makes the claim that she must have the sperm at once because of advanced maternal age. Right. In other words, if she gets a little bit older, she's not going to be able to have any babies. So now the court realizes that they got a big issue at hand here. Um, What is sperm? Is it property? Is it something bigger? I mean, it exists at least symbolically on this kind of Darwinian level about, you know, preservation of species and perpetuation of one's own genetic line. And they're very nervous about just saying, let's just destroy this sperm. Um, They're not really... They don't really want to do that. That's clear. Wait, let me just let me just be um, sure I understand this. Because if they say that sperm is property, his wife and children probably can lay some sort of claim to it or say that this is property and we have some sort of final word over this property. But if it is somehow part of his um, personhood, then it transcends the, the category of property. 
Right. And so they, they go back to the precedent, and um, they find some law regarding human tissue. Um, but most of, that, most of the law regarding that says that, you know, once tissue has left your body, then it can be destroyed. It's not yours anymore because, you know, who cares? Right. But they point out that um, you can't just say that about this particular tissue because Mr. Kane, as we know, assiduously deposited these particular tissues outside of his body with the intention that it be used for procreation. It's not just like sperm sitting around. It's sperm sitting around with great intent. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? Intent to become a child. I charge you of sperm with intent. Well, yes, right. Possession of sperm with the intent to inseminate. Um, <clears throat> okay, so elsewhere in this case, the two kids, the two existing kids, plead with the court that it's just weird to have a kid after your dad. <laughs> is, is that the word they That's, use, or is that just kind of what it comes down to? <laughs> just, well, no, they just say it's 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 it's, it's just it's wrong. Just, they just they don't know what else to say. <laughs> but they they just say we we all can just look at each other in the eye and we know what we mean when we say this is just too weird. That's exactly. that's what it comes down to. Yeah, and you know, in a funny way, on that level, I completely understand them. Okay, so the court reflects on this uh, historic uh, reflects on this issue historically and points out um, something that you probably did not know, which is that quote, according to the Napoleonic Code from the early 19th century. Any child born more than 300 days after the putative father's death is deemed illegitimate, end quote. Now, what that means is, is that, you know, the guy goes off to war, he gets killed. Well, you know, the clock starts ticking the last day he was in town. And 300 days after that, in other words, nine months of pregnancy, um, anybody, any child born after that can't claim the father's goods. In other words, nine months after the guy's dead, his estate is closed and shut, Right. But this is where this case gets very troubling because it keeps it open for potentially ever. As long as the sperm is sitting in the bank with great intent, the estate can't be closed. So in other words, what seems like a very um, simple, though odd, family dispute actually raises a, quite a broad and profound question of the law. Very, absolutely. In, in fact, I mean, I'll, I'll get to this in just a second because there's another thing here that just, that'll, that might make your heart stop when I tell you what it is. But, um, I mean, this thing, at first, when I first read it, I thought, okay, this is just a, you know, funny little case. No, no, no. This is actually, um, this is overthrowing millennia of sort of settled common law in, in a funny way. Now, the existing kids, they make all these claims, but there's some that you just have to hear because I just, just to think about. Okay. Um, one is, uh, the, the quote, the child could suffer psychologically from being conceived by a dead man. Now, I, I, I never really thought about that. But imagine if you grew up and you knew that, like, your father died five years before you were conceived. You know, it's not like being adopted or, you know, where your parentage is somewhat mysterious. That, that's kind of glamorous in its own way. Um, and at least it's something you could, it's a story you can tell yourself. You can fantasize about who your parents might have been. and No, no. Well, I mean... No, but I'm just saying I, I, that I, that I, has... I believe that this... Mr. Hitt? Yeah. The courtroom of this radio studio rejects that argument on these grounds um, because your mom would tell you from the time that you were old enough to understand that your dad wanted to have um, a child with her and just for some reason was very, very busy and just couldn't get around to it in life, which I have to say is one of the stranger parts of the case. That if he was so intent on having a baby with, with Ms. Hatt, right. 
Why didn't he just have a baby with Miss Hack? Do we know that? Uh, no, that's not even discussed. Okay, let me let me just go back to a, a bigger the, the question. Wait, the, you the don't point think that we, you don't think that being conceived by a dead man? I don't care what the mother's explanation is. It's just I mean I go back. I'm I'm sort of on the existing kids side on this particular part of the argument. It's just strange. Well, no, because I could imagine very easily the mother saying to the kid. Um, I don't know, Ira. I think the court of this correspondent <laughs> <laughs> um, just once once it stated for the record that it's it's weird, it's freaky. <laughs> this guy did not. He checked out by by his own his own description. He checked out, um, you know, because of all the Kellys of the world and all that. Uh, and wouldn't wouldn't couldn't even hang five years to see this kid into kindergarten. Okay, I mean. I don't know. I mean, to me, something about being dead before you were conceived is very weird. Okay. Here's what's beautiful. What's the resolution eventually? This court dilly-dallies and hands it off to another court, but that court finally says, you know what? It's property. Frozen sperm is a special class of property, and so we divide it up according to the rules of the will. 20% goes to Deborah. 80% goes to the two existing kids. So Deborah got three of the 15 vials of sperm, and uh, presumably the existing children, not that they had anything to do with it, um, received 12 vials. Then Deborah, apparently, at age 42 last year, began, uh, went into a clinic um, and proceeded to engage in the first instance in American law of post-mortem insemination. That was last fall, I believe. Now, I just want to say one quick thing here. Um, <laughs> I can't uh, I just want you to consider, Ira, what this could lead to. Um, as I said earlier, death was always sort of the key indicator that an estate could be closed out. But now this loophole, frozen sperm, opens a door that could, you know, just keep these postmortem lawsuits going for decades. Um, you know, it reminds me of my friend Peg Perry. She lives in northern Connecticut and raises milk cows. And one time I was up there visiting, and she was inseminating some of the cows. And um, it turns out the bull semen that she uses is from this bull. I can't remember. He had a name, like Ferdinand. Um, and uh, <laughs> Oh, it was like Ferdinand. <laughs> it's the only bull name I know, Ira. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> I'm sure you were paying careful attention to that detail. But this bull, <laughs> can I get to the point here? This bull died like 40 years ago. And, you know, I guess... He died, he died in the 50s. He died like in 1956 or something. And he he had spent his entire life essentially assiduously depositing sperm at the local, <laughs> <laughs> at the local bull bank. And um, apparently it's really, really good sperm. You really get good milk cows from this particular bull. Okay? This bull has like several thousand offspring, probably tens of thousands of offspring all over the country producing milk. Um, and so as of, as of this lawsuit, as of this case, as of this court's ruling, for example, a rich man in California could now leave an estate of, say, a billion dollars and many vials of sperm assiduously deposited with the instructions that any you know, fair maiden who wished to carry one of his children to term would receive, let's just say, $500,000, a one-time gift. And given his estate, he could conceivably sire, what is that, 2,000 children over the next century? All now potentially legal 
in California. See, now, if this catches on, these guys are going to stop running for president. Exactly. I was just going to say, Perot and Forbes could do something better with their time. They could assiduously... Well, anyway, let's go on. So... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's just, um, let's just move on right past that joke. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll just, we'll, just, we'll just bring this to a close. Because okay. I, I did run across... Uh, I, I, I found a, a, a legal weekly in the library uh, yesterday. Um, and I did find that Wyatt Kane may find one other venue of existence after all. Apparently, Deborah Kane has been offered uh, a handsome sum of money by Hollywood producers for the movie rights. Well, that story. is the logical place for it, you know, and I, and I say, <laughs> I say, I say. Well, uh, what is the proper medium for this story? I mean, I, I guess it is the TV movie of the week, really, isn't it? No, Jack. You think it's Jack, bigger than that? The proper medium for this story is for any story Jack hit. <laughs> is radio. <laughs> and we've just done it. And thank you very much for joining us on our program. Thank you, Ira. Well, this is Beatus Veer, and when uh, one of our producers, Nancy Updike, got the notes that came with uh, the song, she was really excited because she looked it up. It apparently said that it was Psalm 3. That was her interpretation, and she looked up Psalm 3 in the Bible, and she was astonished at how perfectly ironic the words of Psalm 3 were when put against the story of uh, Citizen Cain. The words of Psalm 3, Lord... How they are increased that trouble me. Many are they that rise up against me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly and the Kellys of the world. That doesn't really say that part. Unfortunately, closer inspection of the notes that came with the song revealed that it is not Psalm 3, the words to this song. It's actually Psalm 111, whose words cannot possibly be read in any sort of ironic way against the story of Mr. Kane and his family. But by then we had fallen so in love with this song, we just, we just had to play it here. February 8th. A losing political campaign must at some point cease to be about winning and start to be about something else. A moral crusade? A chance to be on TV? A fundraiser for the next election? In Maury Taylor's case, that something else is fun. We now resume Michael Lewis's campaign diaries about failed Republican presidential candidate Maury Taylor. We entitle this act of our program, A Candidate, A Voter and a room full of pigs. To attract attention during the Iowa caucuses, Murray Taylor held five rallies where he gave away a total of $25,000 uh, in a lottery, $5,000 at each of these five rallies. And one of the winners of the five grand was a pig farmer named Wilfred McCready, 
who just happened to be the host of the Iowa caucus for Republicans in the little town where he lived. These diary entries are from February, when the Republican field was still full of people like Lamar Alexander, Phil Graham, and Alan Keyes. February 8th. At last we arrive at the airport. Waiting there are several vans and cars plastered with stickers for Lamar Alexander. Lamar is going places, but as he rises, he is coming under attack, not only from Maury, but from Steve Forbes, who has a new commercial explaining how Lamar turned a thousand bucks into six hundred and twenty thousand dollars with the help of a few friends. We enter the terminal. Lamar's jet is circling overhead. He's preparing to land. Lamar does everything with exclamation points. At length, Alexander emerges and is surrounded by the cameras. You can see he is looking for some way to take advantage of the new camera crews. Spotting Maury, now lingering, disinterestedly on the tarmac's fringe, Lamar strides over to shake hands. He offers Maury a phony smile and a line from his stump speech. Just bought my mud boots for all that negative advertising up in New Hampshire. Maury stares at him for a few seconds like he's some kind of nutcase. That's not negative advertising, he says. They're just telling you the truth. Lamar's happy face vanishes. Poof. A truly nightmarish soundbite has just occurred. The CBS cameras are rolling. The familiar fight-or-flight instinct takes over. So what does Lamar do? He simply ends the conversation, turns and race walks into his car. Gotta go, he hollers over his shoulder as he disappears into the back of his car. That's what happens when you meet the Grizz, Maury booms after him. But the night is still young. Thrilled by a rare, authentic moment, the CBS crew newly assigned to Lamar phones New York. New York orders the crew to leave Alexander and to follow Maury wherever he goes next. Maury takes the crew on a tour of Alexander's jet, which looms massively beside Maury's own small plane. Tell me what is wrong with this picture, I hear him saying. Here you got a little plane made right here in America, belonging to a guy who has just made his own money. And over here, you got a $25 million falconer made in Canada being used by a politician. Four or five carloads of Alexandrians gaze on, helplessly. Meanwhile, overhead, Bob Dole's jet is now circling. Unwisely, it decides to land. There on a tarmac, in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere, one-third of the Republican field has now assembled. Even more astonishing, the one national news network on hand is trailing around behind the surest loser. Dole's plane rolls inexorably towards Maury and CBS, oblivious to the danger. And here, says Maury, we have another politician. Has he ever made any real money? No. So what's he flying in? A $19 million challenger. This one is made in France. But then, just as it appears that Maury will have one last chance to ask Dole about his $4 million government pension, the frontrunner spots Maury, dives straight into his car, and beats Alexander to the airport exit. February 10th on to a church in Des Moines to celebrate heterosexual marriages and protest homosexual ones. Together with a crowd of maybe 800 people, Alan Keyes, Phil Graham, and Pat Buchanan have all turned up to take their wax. 
All the rest except Maury have agreed to sign some pledge to make homosexuals as miserable as possible. Who gives a sh**, Maury said, when I asked him why he wasn't going. If you want to be fruity tooty, so what? February 12th. When I phoned Wilfred McCready, the winner of Maury's $5,000 drawing, to ask if I could observe the caucus on his farm, I could barely hear his response over the squealing of pigs. Upon my dropping of Maury's name, he said, That Maury Taylor, he has it exactly right. I was in. The McCready's have been farming the same land in the middle of nowhere for 128 years. They've both traveled some. But it's been 10 years since the McCready's last had a vacation, and their farm hours make investment banking seem like a walk in the park. Unlike their neighbors, and just about everyone else in Iowa, the McCready's do not participate in any federal farm programs. Before long, the talk drifts to politics. On the phone, McCready became a bit worked up about the marriage rally at the church in Des Moines. Those gays and lesbians are going to protest that meeting? He said in a tone of utter disbelief. God damn, that makes me angry. He said he would have driven the two and a half hours to Des Moines to throw his support behind the strays, but his sows were pigging. Now, once again, he says how angry the gays made him, but in the flesh, his anger comes across differently. At some level, he may be angry, but his prejudice seems mainly to give him pleasure. As he lays into Clinton, homosexuals, and the U.S. government, his real emotion is more like delight, the delight of a good fan rooting for his team. Go straights! Is it true that Forbes owns a Maplethorpe photograph? He asks. I say it is. Dad gummit, he says. Oh, Wilford, what does that matter? Asks Mrs. McCready. That man took pornographic photographs of homosexuals, bellows Mr. McCready, at which point Mrs. McCready just rolls her eyes. I've tried to make myself as agreeable as possible, but it's only a matter of time before I have to come clean with my left-leaning associations. The tension builds as Mr. McCready stakes out a political position on the other end of the spectrum from mine. But it's nearly two hours before I discover that the McCready's have no idea where I am from or what I do, only that I am a friend of Maury Taylor's. You're not from PETA, are you? asks Mrs. McCready finally. I have no idea what she's talking about. People for the ethical treatment of animals, she explains. You just never know when they're going to interrupt. Lately, they've gone to our schools dressed up as carrots to tell the kids not to eat meat. It's truly astonishing. As far as these people knew, I was some protester who had come to disrupt their lives, and yet they still fed me and humored me before venturing to ask. One of the few things I recall from college was that in the Homeric universe, the mark of a civilized person is his kindness to strangers. The good king feeds Odysseus first, then asks questions later. The Cyclops questions him first, then tries to eat him. The Macredes have the gift of kindness to strangers. I put Peto on the list of things to be against. But now there's no getting around it. I must explain what the hell I'm doing in their kitchen. I mention the New Republic and hold my breath. Is that Fred Barnes's place? asked McCready. I say that until very recently it was. Oh, man, says McCready. I love that guy. Really, Fred Barnes? It is true. He's my man, says Mr. McCready, slapping me on the shoulder. It's all very Japanese. 
neither of us wants to put a fine point on political disagreement, and so I've been granted the status of conservative by association. After a bit, Mr. McCready announces that it's time to go chorin. On the way over in the car, he gives me an idea what it's like to host a caucus. In the past couple of days, Phil Graham has called six times, Pat Buchanan twice, and Alan Keyes once. Lamar Alexander has sent McCready two books about himself and a videotape. Pollsters call the McCready's about eight times a day. On the way down the driveway, McCready spots a FedEx package poking out from his mail slot. Maybe it's one of those shirts from Alexander, he says, laughing. It is, or at least it's a collection of Alexandriana. At length, I ask him who he's for. I'm undecided, he says. A week ago, I was for Forbes. Then I got my check. I was for Maury Taylor. Now I don't know. You got to find me one who's going to beat Bill Clinton. Which one do you think? None of them, I say. Damn, he says, slapping his hand on the steering wheel. But he's a good sport about it. He's unhappy for about four seconds, and then he's rueful. At length, we arrive at the pig sheds. Long, low-slung buildings lined with six-by-five-foot metal troughs filled to the brim with oinkers. McCready opens the first door. I recoil and gag. The blast of odor is the most moving thing I've experienced on the campaign trail since I last heard Alan Keyes speak. While I choke in the corner of his office, McCready marches through the pens unfazed. I don't understand," he hollers out over the noise of the pigs. When that McLaughlin hollers out, "Fred Beetlebum Barnes," what is that Beetlebum business? What's that about? I have no idea. In the first week of each piglet's short life, Wilfred takes a pair of steel clippers and cuts their eye teeth. I'd like to do that to Eleanor Cliff," he booms out as I make my way down the row. Clipper eye teeth. Get Fred Barnes to hold her down. A few hours later, at around seven o'clock, twenty-five voters arrive in the McCready's living room to discuss the candidates. Only three are even mentioned: Richard Luger, Bob Dole, and Alan Keyes. From the sounds of their talk, the people in the room are divided between Keyes and Dole. Just before eight o'clock, Mr. McCready passes around a pad of yellow post-its. Two men then collect the votes in a silver pot and adjourn to the dining room table. There, they quietly add the totals: Dole, eleven; Keys, seven; Alexander, four; Luger, three. I ask Mr. McCready who he went for, and he laughs and says, "Guess." When the tally is announced to the room, there is a murmur, and then someone shouts, "Wilfred, does that mean you got to give the five thousand dollars back?" It's clear they all think that Maury was a fool. He spent five grand on the guy, and he couldn't even buy his vote. I prefer to see it another way. Who else but Maury Taylor could give a guy five grand and still leave him free to vote for whom he pleases? Maury Taylor finally dropped out of the presidential race on March 8. Michael Lewis wrote, "We all have a fantasy, and it is profitably exploited by Hollywood, that if only an honest and genuinely free man with a heart of gold ran for president, everything in the world would be put to right. Well, 
Now we know what happens when an honest and genuinely free man with a heart of gold runs for president. He spends $6.5 million and gets 7,000 votes. Michael Lewis's campaign diaries will come out as a book next May from Knopf. Act three, another mixed legacy. What are we to make of the rich, the successful, the powerful? How should we think about them? Take Ron Brown. Ron Brown is someone who could have had a comfortable, low-stress life, but he is one of those people who threw himself into difficult tasks, like, for example, taking over the Democratic Party at one of its lowest moments, uniting it, raising tons of money for it. And when his plane went down, it was a tragedy. But some people have been disturbed at the way many are now eulogizing the former Secretary of Commerce. Brian Gilmore is a legal services attorney in Washington, D.C., a writer and a poet, and he says that in this moment, when so many people have been praising this successful, powerful man as a kind of post-Martin Luther King saint and role model, his feelings are more complicated. I would be a liar if I said I was a political disciple of Ron Brown. In fact, I cannot ever recall thinking that his particular approach to politics was the answer for the widening woes of black America or anyone who is deprived in this society for that matter. It might enable a few privileged upper and middle class African Americans to get richer or gain a foothold into the walls of power and might provide some jobs to a small segment of the population. But I have grave doubts that this approach alone can ever change the fundamental problems the masses of African Americans face on a daily basis. But despite this glaring difference in our political ideals, I was deeply saddened by the death of the man who I admired greatly and who was clearly a role model for me. In his own way, on his own terms, he seemed to solve the W.E.B. Du Bois dilemma of double consciousness that we African Americans are born with and face our every waking moment in this country. He was a man who mastered the art of floating carefully between black America and white America. His way of accomplishing this most difficult task was to get inside the huddle and become a player in American politics and society. Though my life is seemingly taking a vastly different path than his, I have to admit that in a lot of ways, Brown and I are very similar. Both of us were born in Washington, D.C., attended private schools, where middle-class kids were urged to succeed, and like him, I too have become a lawyer. But that is where many of our similarities end. Ron Brown was a partner in a law firm that represented some of the richest clients in the world. 
I have been an attorney for the past three years, representing some of Washington's poorest and most destitute residents. Brown came along at that brief, magical time in American history when the civil rights movement had reshaped the country and opportunities for educated African Americans seemed to be unlimited. He worked for a traditional civil rights organization, the Washington Urban League, and eventually became part of Edward Kennedy's congressional staff. Like so many other minority professionals at that time, he honestly believed in America and its opportunities following the 60s. By contrast, when I came along in search of my position in the world, Ronald Reagan had become president and the civil rights movement was over. My friends and I were convinced he was going to cut all educational funding for African Americans and make us join the army. I can never forget hearing while I was in college of the Reagan administration's open assault on educational grants and social programs that would ultimately change the face of the country. To me, Ron Brown represented a certain type of African-American politician, the kind that emerged from the riots of the 60s with so much promise in the 70s, only to watch black communities nationwide crumble and self-destruct in the 80s under Reagan. This is the world of my client. A public housing tenant that I represented had her apartment taken over by drug dealers. The city refused to help her get the dealers out but they did try to evict her. Another tenant's ceiling caves in and injures her daughter after she had complained for months about a leaky ceiling and the city doesn't respond. The city sued her too. One wonders why we have scenes like these all over Afro-America with so many African-Americans now inside the huddle, just like Ron Brown was. Seeing the headlines about his plane crash, I'm struck now by how black America has deteriorated to the greatest extent economically, spiritually, and socially precisely in the years since so many black Americans gained access to the club. Brian Gilmore is a legal services attorney and author of Elvis Presley is Alive and Well and Living in Harlem. Our program is produced by Nancy Updike and myself today with Peter Clowney, Elise Spiegel, and Dolores Wilbur, contributing editors Paul Tuff, Jack Hitt, and Margie Rockland. Musical help from Rumpity Rattles and the Blues Before Sunrise Radio Network with Steve Cushing. Some music today in our Michael Lewis story was composed for our program by Chicago composer Eric Leonardson. Funding for This American Life has been provided by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Elizabeth F. Cheney Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the members of WBEZ Chicago, WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia. I'm Ira Glass. See you next week with more true stories of This American Life. <laughs>